Powered Podcast, where our gaming potential may be sparse, but we continue to level up anyway. This is episode 17. I am Shelby Stokes, and on the cast today we have Casey. Hello. And Matt Leone, featured writer for Polygon, accomplished author, and person behind the veil of Like a Hurricane, an unofficial oral history of Street Fighter 2. Hey, Matt. Hey, Matt. Hi. Welcome, welcome. Yeah, is it Leon or Leone? How uh, is that? Leon, typically, but whatever people <laughs> want to say is fine by me. Okay, okay. I always, I was is, curious. We were having a debate about that. Is it that. fancier if you see Leone? Like, I guess so. it sounds like a mayonnaise or something. I'm not really sure. <laughs> you French it up a little bit, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I was really excited when you responded, when I reached out. You never know who's going to give us the time of day. And we're a big fan of your work. I'd like to know, how did you get started in this field, in this gaming world? Well, um, I guess it's kind of a long story. I, I basically liked game magazines as a kid. And uh, so this was back in you know like the early days, like EGM and stuff like that. Um, and so kind of I just kept uh, reading and, and paying attention to those. And then that kind of led me to making like, remember when, I don't know if you remember, but like EGM 2, I think it was, and like Tips and Tricks, they had like a fanzine column for a little while. Yeah, I so I started just like making my own fanzine. Uh, it's terrible. And <laughs> I it's... Yeah, I, th- I think it went like, like four different names over the course of like five issues or something like that. Um, it was really bad. Um, but then that kind of just got me interested in kind of playing around with different ideas on how to cover stuff. So then I did some fan sites, uh, kind of focused on arcade games a lot at that point. And then I got an, an internship at, uh, oh wait, no, then I did some freelance with Gamers.com, uh, which had that, that big Silicon Valley money for a year or two there. Yeah. Um, then I did an internship with Official Xbox Magazine. Then I got a job with 1UP, and that lasted a while. I was there for about 10 years. And then I got a job at Polygon, which is getting closer to 10 years now. And Shelby is was a diehard. I loved 1UP, too. But Shelby, when I said, yeah, he worked for 1UP, he was <gasps> the stars. Yeah, see, I was one line. of people who was at 1UP for almost the entire uh, length of its run. But but most of the people remember one up for for a lot of like the personality and the the video and, and podcast stuff and and I, mm-hmm. I dabbled in that some but that wasn't really like my focus I was I was there but I wasn't necessarily in all the things you loved <laughs> Well that's okay that's all right. right I mean you were there for it so I mean that that fits on the resume somewhere right Oh yeah yeah sure so has like your process changed as a writer since then I'm sure it has Since one up um I mean since anything yeah. really I think you you with like anything, you, you kind of learn what you like and learn what you don't and kind of evolve over time. I, I don't know if I would say there's like some huge thing I would point to, but definitely I think stuff has improved, hopefully. And uh, I think I'm just less <laughs> eager to do a lot of the, the more uh, bland stuff these days, at least for my personal taste. Um, so I, I kind of find ways of getting around that. I guess. Well, this oral history, you did the one for Final Fantasy VII, and now you've done the Street Fighter one. and I was reading on your Twitter today, too, it's taken you a year of research for this article? It's kind of complicated. So, like, the so Street Fighter, I, I did a, a Street Fighter two oral history, oh. which I think ran in 2014. Yes. Um, yes. I probably worked on that for about a year at that time. Um, then now I'm doing, like, a new series of stories, kind of, like, filling out everything that happened, like, before or after Street Fighter two. Um, mm-hmm. and I've probably been working on that for about a year as well. And there've been other things that like I've done here and there in between that you could all kind of add in. So I don't know exactly what the timeline is, but it'll probably be two or three years if you add it all up for whatever wow. this ends up being. Um, but it's not like that's like a full time thing. It's, you know, I still have a, a day job where I'm, I'm doing a lot of like editing and, and occasionally writing other stuff. So it, it, right. it fills out. Would you say this was a big passion project for you because of your love of Street Fighter? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, this is like, <laughs> you could say uh, of any story I've worked on, this is kind of like what everything I've been working on for the last decade or so has kind of led up to, just in, both in terms of liking this game and in terms of, like, thinking the story behind it is very interesting. But also, like, if you look at the types of stories I've worked on, um, it's all kind of in this same uh, vein. Like, not necessarily oral yeah. histories. I've done yeah. some of those, but, like, lots of stories about people who make games and and getting more comfortable with doing different types of approaches and stuff like that. So I think this is is very much kind of along those lines. It's kind of like, it's playing into what I've, I've done before, for sure. Well, yeah, like one of my favorites is your Cuphead story about the two brothers. <laughs> Dude, that, that okay, one so is some of my favorites. 
Okay, I appreciate that, but tell me the truth. Did you just find that out looking it up before this interview, or do you remember? No, no, no. Because it didn't do that well. No. Here's the big reason why. I wanted to play Cuphead for years. So the whole thing of our podcast is backlogs in that we're both dads. And I grew up gaming, Shelby grew up gaming. My dad worked for Nintendo growing up. Like, we're very connected. I was that kid. Oh, well, Casey's dad works at Nintendo. But he really did. What did he do? He was a quality control engineer. So he worked in the manufacturing side, and he did that for 10 years, and he worked at Electronic Arts. Everyone wanted to come hang out with my dad. That was the joke. Like, oh, let's go to Casey's house and play with his video games and talk to his dad. And I'm like, oh, okay. See, when I was when I was young, I was in, like, uh, I think it was high school. One of my friend's moms worked for GameWorks. So that oh, was, like, nice. my equivalent in that I could go and get free tokens and that kind of thing. I guess it wasn't tokens, so, but, you know, free credits. Anyway. But that article didn't do well? I mean, it did fine. But it's not, like, yeah. something that people would particularly remember, like... It's not something people. It's not something people bring up a lot. I'm weird, and Shelby can know this too. From my mind, we did a trivia contest recently, and I dominated him in an embarrassing fashion. What I remember, but what I liked about it was one, the art pictures in it. When you go back to it, it's the, so. Did you have them make those pictures in that article for that you guys? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's definitely something I've. I mean, been fortunate to to be able to do a lot these days. Is uh, or more recently, I should say, is is. is whether we're hiring freelance artists or working with people, like doing more, putting more of a focus on like presentation of, of stories. So whether that's art or like 3D renders or videos or whatever else, um, and kind of tying that all together with the story instead of just kind of thinking about that at the end. So for that story, that was kind of the whole pitch for that story initially was like, I didn't really have some huge idea for what to do with it, um, like on, on the tech side. So I was like, well, let's see if they'll go for this and then I'll decide if we're going to write this story or not. Whereas usually it happens cool. the other way around. Usually you do the story first and then like start thinking about the art later on. Yeah. But in that one, I was just like, I wanted to do something a little different and they, they went for it. I think it helped that the game was, was very successful. I don't think yes. you could get away with that kind of pitch on a game that was a bomb. Like I, I, I pitched that on some other things that like the same concept, but some other games. Uh, where the artist makes the art for you from the game. Yeah, where they kind of like tell their own story through, through illustrations. Um, and, and in one case, it looked like it was going to happen, but then the game didn't do very well, so the article didn't pan out, um, which is fine. You know, stuff doesn't happen a it lot. Happens. But, but uh, I think the fact that Cuphead was so successful, it probably wasn't as big a, a stretch for them to, to spend a little bit of their, their kind of man hours putting that together. And I noticed they actually reused some of those arts. They did, uh, I think it was a, a dice speech. They reuse some of those same images, oh, you know, cool. like on the stage behind them. Which, uh, That's awesome. I, I liked it because your writing was the storytelling. So it's like it was an awesome collab. But that stuck out to me when I read it years ago. And so that's one of my games on my backlog. Like Shelby and I have a monthly competition about who can beat the most games off their backlog. And each month the loser has to do something stupid. Hmm. Like I had to eat a raw potato, which was not fun. And this week, month, I think we're putting up a vote on our Twitter, but someone's going to have to drink like a mystery shake or something stupid. Yeah, oh, it's a bunch. Of, oh, and we're doing a live karaoke. Uh, someone has to, I have to <laughs> sing meatloaf. Hmm. Uh, yes. You know, you, you could do worse. I know. You know, he, he gets, doesn't get the credit that he deserves. <laughs> meatloaf, the underrated artist that nobody really gives their respect to. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. You mean the guy from Fight Club? Yeah, he's great. I think it's coming back around. There was a period where people hated him, but now it's like... He's cool, cool yeah. Cuphead's a game that's always eluded me that I wanted to go back to. Now that's on the Switch, it's been perfect for me. And so that article, I liked Mm. it back then too because I was like, oh, wow, this is the art. uh, That always sticks out to me. And a lot of the games you write about are games I love too. But with this project, with Street Fighter and those other histories, when you're interviewing... How, how do you set those up? How do you go about doing that? Is it contacts through your company or are you out searching for them? I mean, I think it's every, every case is slightly different. Um, it, the, the big kind of uh, difference with, with a story like this is that a lot of people speak Japanese. So Yeah, I was going to ask. Do you... you... Yeah, I, I don't speak Japanese. I, mean, I, know, okay. I know a tiny bit, but not enough to do interviews or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I basically just work with an interpreter and, uh, you know, you, you, you reach out and you, you have pitching process and see if people agree and then you you start talking i don't know it's um I, the only real difference with the having an interpreter is it's, it's more expensive <laughs> so you have to kind of be a little more uh thrifty with what you do but on something like this where like the company is behind it and you have some some budget to work with uh you can fortunately pull that off right um, but yeah i mean i don't know pitching is is not that complicated really it's, you get you find the person you tell them what you're doing and you see if they want to participate 
Yeah. Well, it seems like you got a lot of people. That's the thing about this exotomy. You got you you really did deep research. Same with the Final Fantasy VII one, where you're talking about the disc drive and the relationship Nintendo had with all De- Square, Capcom, all those big developers, and the break off from PlayStation. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where having a good amount of time to work on it really helps you because you can you may not even know of a person's name until like an interview you do six months into a project. And then just having the time to then say, like, oh, okay, let's go try to find that person or let's go see what else we can do. Um, sometimes having time is good just because people aren't always, like, not everyone checks their email every day. Sometimes you have to find people on, through the phone or through um, other yeah. sources. Um, some people have old accounts that, like, you'll, you'll contact and, and never hear from and then think, like, oh, I guess they don't want to do it. And then you'll just reach out on some other platform and they'll be like, yeah, sure, they just didn't check that other one. So you never really know. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just kind of you just kind of stick with it and, and keep poking. And I think the the people who are more important to the story, I'll try in like seven different ways until they finally tell me no. Whereas some of the people who are more peripheral, I'll try like one or two ways. Um, but yeah, it, it you know I, I have a problem because I don't really like to stop, especially on a story like this where like if I get <laughs> twenty people, I'd rather get twenty five and that kind of thing. So. Um, you know, I, I, especially with kind of that oral history structure, I, I like the idea of like having different people in the room giving their own perspectives on it because not everyone remembers it the same way or, or agrees on kind of how it happened or who made the decisions and stuff like that. So I think it's uh, I think it's useful to get as many people as possible just to kind of kind of I don't know fact check each other. You rather edit down than have to find more. Right, kind of thing. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, this is this is the luxury I have of if I having a full time job and and having a decent budget behind me is that I can do that. Whereas, you know, if you're if you were doing this as like a freelance uh, story, you might be much more um, conscious of like wasted time. Um, whereas, like for something like the the Street Fighter thing, even though it's going to be incredibly long, I don't know what the word count will be, but it'll be like you know fifty thousand words or something like that, probably more. Um, but if you look at the total like you know, number of words in transcripts, I'm sure it's five times that yeah so why street fighter in particular what's drawn you to street Fighter? i mean so i guess there's two parts one is just it was it was the game that i I grew up on that i've always loved um but that's like i think anybody could say that anyone who's like in my general age range would probably uh have not anyone but a lot of people have like really strong feelings about it Uh, how old am i (laughs) i think i'm 39 (laughs) late 30s anyway yeah we're in our 30 a little while yeah um but yeah, so like basically it came out when I was like, you know, 10 or 11 or 12, somewhere in there. Um, so it, it definitely kind of hit in that era when I, like, things like pop culture like, it was incredibly important to me. Um, but I, I think beyond that, I think it, it is an interesting story as well, because like what I like about it is showing kind of the, the, the cultural differences and like how the different. Um, people who worked on the game in different offices, like in the U.S. and in Japan, kind of worked together. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of, like, limited communication back then, so you didn't always, like, even talking to them now, they'll have certain, like, I'll talk to someone, for instance, who worked in the U.S. office, and they will remember something completely different from someone who worked in the Japan office. And I it, I think it's got to be some combination of just communication wasn't as as strong back then um and and you know it's just weird how sometimes these stories kind of take on a life of their own like i think a lot of times in in media stories you'll get a a, a, a something short that's kind of out of context it'll be like a couple of quotes or an interview with one person and nothing wrong with that i mean there's, there's a lot of validity to that approach but sometimes you'll get a story like an anecdote for instance about like how something came about and people will kind of treat that as fact because that's the only version of that story that's out there. So what I'm really trying to do with a lot of these is, is kind of get the different takes and, and kind of put them side by side so that you can see that like, you know, not everyone just remembers things the same way. Um, and not everyone kind of always agrees on things. So I don't know. Personally, I find that a lot more interesting just from a, a, a perspective of, of just showing how it's not always so clean cut. I guess. Right. Well, it's real journalism. We we're people are losing that. You're getting more than one fact, and you're not just rushing to get clicks and say information because that's like a I think an issue in our news cycles today. You you're doing your well 
deserved research for this, and that's why these I, articles stick yes. out. I mean, it's also writing about video games, but this is true too. This is true too. <laughs> it's but not, it's, it's it's art, I, I, and I, I don't mean that as a negative at all. I mean, no. I, I love it. It's my my career, but it's not like I don't know. Let's 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 not oversell it too much. It's true. Oh, right, right, right. I get what you're saying. But well, for me, like with reading like the the latest article that you did the name of Bill Cravens and how you're talking to his sons. I think that's like going the extra mile. And so his importance to this, to this, to the beginning of street fighter in the U S was very interesting. He sounded like an interesting character. I, 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 that was like one of the big takeaways I took from the article. Yeah. I, I think, I think someone should write a story just about him. I think that would be very interesting. Um, Maybe you should. <laughs> if I have time to do anything else, I would love to, but right now I'm kind of buried in this for the next six months. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, I, uh, I think he's great. I think he is very interesting because part of the a big part of the, the kind of the Street Fighter Two story is like no one really agrees on exactly how Street Fighter Two happened. At least of all the people I've found, like there's a lot of different versions and they're all very similar, involving like kind of the path from Street Fighter One to Final Fight to Street Fighter Two. Right, because um, they're in the but, same universe, right? Yeah. Well, and the same people made same, right. Final Fight and Street Fighter Two, or at least a lot of them. Yeah. Um, so. There's different um, versions of how that came about, and, and some of them involve Bill Cravens. So it's unfortunate that as you know, we're trying to get all the different versions out there, when, when someone like him uh, passes away, it's, it's hard to, to you know, figure that out. There's, there's another guy on the Japan side named Sakai who also passed away, and like, he would have had uh, pretty um, significant things to say about kind of how it came about so i think as, as time goes on you you lose the opportunity to get some of those stories out there so that's that's another reason why i think it's it's valuable to do this kind of thing now while while most of the people are still around um, right but yeah like it's it, it's one of the weird things where like you know this is a game that is you know one of the most popular games of all time and like people don't really know and, and when i say people i mean like the people who made it like they don't all necessarily agree on exactly how it happened. So, right. yeah. do do you find like any shocking insights based on the interviews that you've done so far? Is there anything that's been like, wow, I had no idea? Like any factoids that come to mind? Um, I mean, it, it's 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 all little things. I, I think the, the most surprising thing to me is just how many situations there are where people disagree with each other. Like, oh, you know, like mm. I, I thought this was my idea, and I thought this was my idea, and and they. And, and partially, I think that's just because, like, what I was talking about, like, the, the kind of international communication. And, and partially, it's just that time has gone by and, uh, you know, it, it's like any, any office or any conversation. Like, it, it's, it's very tempting to have, like, that one clean answer of, like, this is the visionary person who came up with this thing and, and they were in charge of it all. But, like, it's usually, like, 15 or 20 people all contributing in different ways. And it's hard to really nail those kind of clear-cut answers down especially uh this many years later with but you know it's fun to try well and you kind of cover that i noticed that too when you talk about the original team going to uh to make snk mm. well joining and SNK. i noticed joining sk yes and how there was a lot of different stories and you would have that editor's note about this is what they said like you you did a really good job of not making it this rumor thing you you played all the angles correctly because someone was like well they said it was an issue like everyone was going after the the composer i can't think mm -hmm. of her name right now and then they said well no someone talked to her on a train and it seemed like it'd be a giant head hunting issue but i like i that that was an interesting tale too because without that team it's that's it made that rivalry of snk and street fighter i didn't realize that yeah i mean th that's one of the biggest challenges with with this format is um, trying to not put anything out of context. So partly that's just interviewing as many people as you can, but it's also like how you edit it together. Like a, a lot of, or not a lot, but I think I talked to, I don't know, four people who all suggested that hand hunting was kind of the core of the, the tension between SNK and Capcom. Um, <laughs> but some of them weren't a hundred percent sure. Some of them thought there might have been other personal stuff going on. Like I, I heard that, like the 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 guys who ran uh, Capcom and SNK had known each other earlier, like before the companies were started to, like in college or something like that. So I'm I'm not really mm -hmm. sure. Like in, you know, any relationship between two people is going to be more complicated than just like one thing. Um, so right. you know, one of the big challenges is to edit together the comments you have in a way that 
is both um, as kind of uh, open and, and revealing as possible, but also not like, like I'm saying, like I was saying before, like not, not to assume that this is like the one clear cut answer for everything. And, and that's, that's hard sometimes, um, that, which, which is why you see a lot of those editor's notes in there, because a lot of that's like, you know, covering our ass to kind of like say like, you know, right. we don't necessarily right. know everything. And here's something else that you should know before you get back to the, the more kind of entertaining conversation part. It's kind of like you, it, it's, it's the, <laughs> the annotations that like we have to have in there just to like try to be as accurate as we can. Did you get to talk with Yoko, uh, Shimomura at all yeah. about the music? Yeah, so I'm excited to hear about that. So yeah, um, so she's so fortunately for the book, she's actually gonna be composing a song. Uh, Whoa. Oh Whoa. yeah, check out the, the campaign; it's all over there. It's great. Yeah, yeah, it's um, great. on Kickstarter. We're gonna we're gonna link it into the podcast. song for sure. the book just makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> But, yes, hey, for, for for the audio version for sure. Fun. Um, no, I mean it, 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 it's a it kind of fun uh, little side project. That's awesome. But yeah, like so that one of the one of the options are for the the Kickstarter campaign is you can get like a, a small seven inch vinyl of of a, her theme song for the book. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I've talked to her a couple times over the years, and she's been very friendly about everything. Like, I, I, there's not a ton of new like revelations about her right. music in the book compared to. Uh, what was in the original Street Fighter World History back in, in the 2014 one. Um, there's, yeah. but there's a few new things in there. Her music is yeah, just prolific, yeah. So I guess my question for you, who, what Street Fighter 2 theme is your favorite? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm, I don't really have strong favorites on that kind of thing. I mean, I like a lot of them. Oh, I was hoping you'd be yeah. a Kins theme man. Like it, it, all, it all brings me back like to that time, which I think is great. Um, but yeah, it's the same thing with like a character. Like, I, you know. I like them all. I, well, not all, but I like most. Who don't you like? Yeah, I know. I saw that where that was going. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I can never really get into E-Honda personally, just as far as, like, play style. And, and I was never any good with Zangief. But, but yeah, like, I mean. When you were writing about the Street Fighter cabinet and the original cabinet with the pneumatics, was there anybody, cer- is that in circulation anywhere, do you know of? Yeah, there are a few out there. Can you explain that to the reader, what you found out about the, what they were trying to do with the original cabinet? Yeah, listening. so so the the original Street Fighter One uh, had a, a a special like deluxe version of the cabinet, which initially it was at least in the U.S. and initially it was just released that way. Japan they also had like a smaller one, and then they all kind of got rid of it over time. But essentially, it was uh, a joystick with two big buttons, and you you hit one button for punch and one button for kick, and the harder you punch it. Uh, the the harder your your kicks, which is where the six buttons come from, because each of those buttons has three levels of right. impact. So um, that came about because uh, Capcom wanted to compete with like Sega and Namco. They were making more like interactive arcade cabinets, and and Capcom was like, well, we don't really have uh, the the knowledge or staff to make something like like hang on like a full motorcycle that you can you can ride on, but maybe we can do something halfway. So this was kind of their idea of doing like a halfway between a normal cabinet and a, a kind of like a dedicated deluxe thing. Um, didn't really work that well because different reasons. Um, partially it was people were getting hurt. Partially it was because it, it just didn't work that well or it maybe didn't hold up over time from uh, like a lot of people like to beat up on arcade machines. Um, right. So there's a lot and of that one's literally letting you do it. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was encouraging you to. Um, yeah. Because like the way the button was shaped, like if you missed the middle of the button and you hit like off to the side, then your fist would kind of like slide down and hit the the cabinet itself. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's it, so yes, there are some still out there. Like they did a, a Capcom. I think Capcom put it on it. They were at least involved. Um, there's a, a museum exhibit that's going on in Japan. I think right now. They reopened it after the, like they did a first version of it, but then no one really went because of the, the COVID situation. So they, they reopened right. it, but I think it's going on right now. Um, and they have one of those cabinets there. And there are a few around here or there. Like I, I know some collectors have them and that kind of thing, but there's not a lot. Um, it's definitely hard to find in like an average arcade. Um, but, you know, I, I, I like it a lot just for the, the history of it. Like that would be one of my, like if I was to ever own an arcade machine i would want something like that just for the the kind of novelty of it even even if you wouldn't really get that much out of playing it yeah it's cool that it even exists though yeah it's it's like it's this piece of trivia you know it's not in some ways that 
makes the original game to me much more interesting than just it being a, a versus fighting game, just because it has this, like, trying to do something grander and, and failing at it, but then, like, kind of falling backwards into this huge hit because yeah. of that. It's cool that it even exists, though, in some <laughs> right. capacity. The accidental success. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really, I, I wouldn't say the whole of Street Fighter Two was an accident, because I, clearly they knew what they were doing, no. but... They probably never would have gotten to that point of making a versus game if they hadn't had this other idea that kind of got them there. So, well, and the six buttons was a good move. I think a lot of arcade cabinets went to yeah. try that. They were just yeah. like, "Oh, that's an option now." Yeah, for sure. It, 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 it you know, and not every fighting game has six buttons, but certainly a, a lot of games no. were were not as afraid of being complicated at that point. Out of all these articles, would you say this is the one you're most proud of? The, the you mean the one on Street Fighter One or? Uh, what you're yes the street fight this this oral history coming out or is there something in the past that you wrote that you think is like is still your all-time favorite i know for artists i know like or writers it's hard to be like well my old work is my best work i get that but is there one is this your i mean thank you for work, calling me an artist that feels weird to me but i appreciate you it. are for sure um, you're, you're a writer it's for sure i i don't know i mean i i it's not done so i really couldn't say that about this i've i've finished part of it and i have a lot to go um <laughs> so probably not yet but um yeah i don't know i i think my my main goal is to always try to do things that are a little different than i've done before so whether that's doing a different kind of format for a story or a different kind of <laughs> theme or approach or design or whatever else. Um, and so from that perspective, I'm always kind of more excited about what I'm doing next instead of what I've done before. Uh, I guess uh, to date, maybe the Final Fantasy thing, but I, I don't really. Is, is there anything that comes to mind in yeah. terms of like you thought it was a little underrated in terms of viewership? Like, is there something you were really excited about? And you're like, hey, why oh, didn't this work? Probably like <laughs> half the stuff I've done. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, like I, I am I am in a fortunate position where like if something fails, I'm not going to be in huge trouble over it. Like I have enough leeway to kind of bounce back on other things. So it's not a big problem. Um, but yeah, I mean, like there there will be stories I've done that haven't performed especially well and always a little disappointing but yeah uh not not no one that's like more horrible than the others but like yeah if, if you were to like make a list of like the hundred stories that i've done that i liked best i'm sure probably half of them did not kind of perform at a level that really makes like a huge impact um so it's yeah. just kind of the luck of the draw like you, you never really it i would say as someone who's like not necessarily just the stuff i've written but like i, I do a lot of editing of other stuff like Looking at it, stories, only maybe like 5% of the time are you like really confident, like this is going to be successful yeah. and perform well. For sure. Like there's, a, a lot of it is the gamble beyond that. And, you know, I think it's it's fun to to play around in that area where you don't know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah. It's, I have to say, oh, when I was yeah. going through your catalog before this interview, I really enjoyed the interview with Yoko um, from Pal Platinum Games, Near Automata. Um, yeah, oh, okay. that was one of my favorite games and it was kind of like outside of the window and it's just kind of a weird, you know, that individual is kind of different in the gaming space as it is. So I was pretty attracted to that. I enjoyed that quite a bit. Yeah. He's kind of got a bit of that, like, it's almost like a throwback thing to like the old, like Itagaki days where it's not really like the media treats him differently <laughs> than they do other yeah. people. And Swery's kind of got that too. It's like, because they have kind of created this personality, I feel like the media kind of leans mm -hmm. into it maybe a little too much sometimes um but it is fun at the same time so it's it's kind of a, a tricky balance <laughs> well in that game specifically i kind of walked into it not knowing what to expect and it just kind of went off the rails i'm like what is going on so mm. i i personally enjoyed yeah, it great. and he got a nod of the hat from me that's for sure yeah, you're hooked to all his games now. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So <laughs> they're long. So yes, yeah. yes, they are. So as you know, we're a game, we're a uh, podcast that kind of focuses on our back catalog. What are you currently playing right now? Well, that's the trouble at the moment is that I'm I'm kind of busy with some stuff, so I haven't really played a lot recently. Um, I guess I'm playing Last of Us, but like <laughs> I'm not that far into it yet. Um, <laughs> Last of Two, I mean. uh, but yeah, I yeah. Oh, man, I really don't have much. I played, What did I play recently? I played Space Channel 5 VR, <laughs> which is not even that new oh, anymore. Nice. But um, okay. just kind of That's okay. We talk stuff. about old games all the time. Um, I've got a list here somewhere <laughs> of stuff I've uh, How about in. this? 
what do you have on your backlog? Uh, yeah. In terms of stuff that you. So want I to literally get have a written down backlog list that I'm looking at right now. <laughs> Let's hear it. Uh, Love it. Iron Man VR one. Uh, Paper Beast. There's a lot of VR stuff on here, just because it takes mm-hmm. me longer to uh, set it up, and I don't necessarily get to it as easily. Uh, Child of Eden, not VR, but kind mm-hmm. of in the similar realm, going back a little further. Uh, uh, let's see, uh, a short hike, not VR at all, but something that I should probably get to. Uh, Astrobot, which I've played like half of, and I liked a lot, but then my tracking got all messed up on, so I need to get back oh, to no. it. Um, yeah, a lot of VR stuff in there. I think I think there is a strong correlation between like not having the energy or the the enthusiasm to kind of set all that up at the end of the day the, for the vr <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean whether it's psvr or anything else even even like on the quest it, it's still it's just it takes more of a commitment when you're when you're tired at like because i got i got kids too so like when you're tired yeah. at the end of the day it's uh i don't know it, it's hard for me to kind of want to kind of interact in that way i think for sure are they at gaming age with you no are not you, yet. Do you do you game with your kids not, yet not okay, really not yet no. they're still yeah. Yeah, I, I have a couple littles in our house, and this quarantine has been a lot of fun. We, it's, it's definitely been interesting yeah. with the teaching at home aspect and all the other pieces that, that come with this uh, pandemic that we're currently in. Right. I have my son playing the – he's at very kindergarten age, and he we have an SNES Mini, and he turned it on and started Zelda Link to the Past, and I've just been yeah. slowly watching and guiding. You know, I don't want to be like, <laughs> yes, do it, do it, but – yeah. He's he's getting the red pendant right now. I'm very proud of him and the work he's put in. See, he's, he senses he senses that excitement yes. even if you don't yes. show it. Like he knows this is important to you. I'm doing the Mr. Miyagi nod in the background. <laughs> you know, hmm, I threw. Yeah. So in the bush, the bush. <laughs> just try that bomb bush. that king. Right, look at that thing. It looks weird. Just put a bomb right there for no specific reason. Yeah. Just, yeah. See what mm-hmm. happens. Then he wants to bomb everything. You know the guy who's playing the flute in the forest in that game where the animals yeah, is like yeah. I'm gonna go try to bomb him. I'm like, I don't think that's the answer, but okay. I like the gusto. He's going to find something you never knew existed, and you're going to oh, for sure. be so proud. He, the, the flippers was the big thing, because he got the red boomerang mm. faster than I ever did. I didn't notice that until I was like way farther in the game. He was just like, I'm going to swim everywhere. Hmm. And it's so fun. It's interesting to watch how he plays. Do you mostly PC game these days, or is it with, besides the VR, what are you playing on? I mean, I, I pretty much a little everything. Not, not as much on PC, really. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, it, I... I really, I'm, I mean, I'm fortunate enough at the, to, both because of the job and because I'm a little bit older to be able to, like, afford consoles and stuff, I, yeah. I don't have to, like, be too limited to one or another. Um, but, yeah, I wouldn't, I mean, I guess I'd probably play on PS4 the most, but it's not really, like, I feel like I'm limited right. to that or anything. I, I, yeah, because you're playing Last of Us 2, too, and I, we, yeah. no loyalty is obviously not, like, a console guy they don't the console wars. hey that's okay yeah. i have no problem with that i just yeah i mean like if i had to say i i definitely play playstation more than like xbox or, or switch but that's mostly just because that's the right now that's what the, the stuff that yeah I like has been coming the, out great on. exclusives no totally totally agree i think it's a great i'm a nintendo like because of my dad i'm a nintendo diehard ah, loyalist still okay they put me through college i have to be i have to i have to appreciate them so, something we'd like to do, we have three big news articles every week we like to talk about. Would you join us for that? Is that cool? Yeah, you yeah. Got time? Awesome. Right, Shelby, you want to start with the first one? Sure. Uh, the first one we picked out involves Sony. Last week, the news broke that Sony is going to be investing in a minority stake of Epic Games. Um, pretty sizable uh, purchase here of $250 million, but it is a minority stake in Epic Games. So this is a pretty big move for PlayStation, but also keep in mind that Epic Games is a huge, huge organization, um, and Bloomberg estimated it to be over $16 billion, and that article is coming from Kotaku specifically. So yeah, Sony making moves for next gen. Pretty interesting. They're... Huh? It, it you like I've said before I think of Steam and Epic now as like a two man race for PC and where people are going to do PC gaming but I think in Sony's trying to move more and more because they just finally put out the what was their open world Horizon Zero Dawn right that's finally on PC now right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I think they're making a push to the PC space because I everything Microsoft saying about what they're going to be doing with the Series One is like I'm like oh that sounds like a good move that sounds like a good move that's like they're they're coming in hard and I think Sony's starting to make some calculated moves here but epic man that Fortnite money's real yeah I mean I I don't know how much this is just about like 
Sony and next gen. I mean, if you look at the percentage of investment in Epic, like compared to how much else is in Ep money is in Epic, it's it's yeah. really a pretty small slice. Right. So no. like, it's a ton of money for any any person to think about. But as far as like the valuation of Epic, it's not like a huge percentage yeah. of the company. Yeah. Uh, I I don't get the sense that this is gonna like change Epic's trajectory in any specific way. I think it's mm -hmm. mostly just Sony sees like a an opportunity for. Uh, for you know, on the financial side, but I I don't know, like I don't think this is gonna end up getting like some kind of Fortnite exclusive thing because of this. I think that's a separate no, kind either. of conversation. No, I would so, agree. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting, but like it, it's weird if you look at it. Like if you really look at like the history of like who has money in what companies, it's surprising sometimes. Like I don't have a lot of great examples offhand, but like there are a lot of companies that like you wouldn't even think about that have investments in other companies that just because like day to day, you don't even really notice mm -hmm. it. It's just kind of the way they're, they're spread out. Um, and I, I, I have a feeling this is going to be like one of those where like, it seems like, Oh, okay. It's a big deal right now, especially after Epic just showed it's, it's tech demo and like said nice things about PlayStation and all that. Right. But like, are we really going to hear about this again in the next five or 10 years? I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, my knee jerk reaction and maybe the way the article is written and my, my mind goes immediately to, okay, if PlayStation has these exclusives or Sony specifically has these exclusives, is this the game front that they're moving towards for the next cycle? And maybe this is a nod in the right direction, or maybe this is just, as you said, you know, a minor investment. Because, I mean, you are talking about two huge companies with Sony and Epic Games. And Sony's pretty opportunistic. They always have been. Like, they were with the disk drive, they were in, in general, and they want to make moves, I think, too. And, I, yeah, I, I, it is very small. I'd be curious to see if Sony would launch an exclusive game for Epic, too. Something that would only be on Epic and not on Steam. I would be very surprised. Um, but if, if that did happen, I don't think it would be because of an investment like this. I think it would just be mm -hmm. because, like, some other reason that makes sense to them business-wise. Like, I don't I don't know. Maybe, maybe I don't know what it would be. Yeah, know. I mean, they make some interesting business moves, too. I, and again, I'm a Nintendo fan talking about, like, business move for your company. But because <laughs> we want to see more of the cross-console play, right? So I'm hoping that's also a step towards that. Like, I like being able to play Rocket League with my friends on all systems, but I'd like to be able to play just about every game that's multiple console. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, certainly there's been some history there, but I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't feel like this is going to make a huge impact in that. I feel like this is more yeah. just people on the business side. Flexing. Yeah. Making deals. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Yeah, everyone is doing business with somebody all the time. One of those ideas, right? Right. Yeah. Well, and speaking of business and deals too, Polygon just put out an article for a second story about the game prices going up, possibly seventy dollars. Sure. And so when I read that, you get kind of the knee jerk reaction, like, "Oh my god, seventy dollars!" But then it's kind of like if you think about how long games have been sixty dollars, you're like, "Oh yeah." I can see that like this it's time i know like for us with money you're like you know my money can go to something for my kid or i can buy myself a triple a title or i can ask for it for a gift it's i i think maybe i might be a little more hesitant to try something initially right out of the gate is this going to change how you buy games shelby where you're going to be i know you like to wait to see how it's reviewed or uh, received but Will this affect your AAA buying titles? No, no. I mean, I'm, I'm not buying a lot of games at launch as it is, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. Um, so 60 to 70 doesn't really matter to me. Um, I also feel like right now it's the cheapest time to be playing video games. Like there's yeah. such vast catalogs and everybody's vying for the attention of, of the masses that it feels like games go on sale pretty quickly. Um, so this, you know, for me personally, this doesn't change the way I game on the day to day. It's weird, too, with the digital, the move to digital. I'm surprised they're going up. You would think with, and not that, like, I know how much a disc costs to make because of my dad and growing up in that. Like, it's not, they're, you're making a lot of money when they move from disc to cartridges. So I, I don't know. And with everybody, you know, a lot of people are about to lose jobs. I'm curious if they might shift back. What do you, what do you think, Matt? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the thing that, I mean, you're, you're probably well aware of this because you're, you're talking about your history, but, like, the thing that a lot of, people don't necessarily realize is it's not just like the amount of money that a game costs to make that is determining mm -hmm. the price it's also how many copies the company predicts it will sell so like if there's a game that costs like a hundred million dollars and you're only going to sell i don't know a hundred thousand of it 
that's probably not going to do very well for you. Um, whereas that same game, if it has like the right built-in audience and license or everything, it can cost the exact same amount and it can sell, you know, 10 million copies. And all of a sudden it's this, this amazing hit. So like, it sounds simple when I say it that way, but like, I think it's this, it's the equation of how much a company will make on the game that determines the price. It's not just the inflation or the money that went into it and stuff like that. So I don't know. I feel like, yeah, I mean, games will probably go up on the high end, which I'm fine with. Um, I, it, it's weird too, because like, if you remember back in the old days, like games used to have all kinds of different prices to them. Yeah. And then there was a period yeah. where they all kind of cost the same, whether it was 50 or 60. And then like everything like, was that. Like the Super Nintendo era. I remember at Toys R Us as a kid, you, I needed 50 bucks if I wanted to go get a game that like my dad couldn't yeah, snag. Yeah. Or if I wanted to get it, the Dark Secret Sega games because I love Sonic. And, and there were games in that period that probably cost a very small amount to make and games that cost on like the highest end and they were selling them all for the exact same amount and that doesn't really happen too much these days um i guess the yeah i mean <laughs> like the the extreme example of that would be like an arcade game whereas like you you make a game that is not super high budget these days if you're making an arcade game maybe a couple million dollars on the t- on the high end um and then you may just sell a, a, a small number of cabinets, and each cabinet is super expensive, but you're able to make your money back that way because there's so much like profit per cabinet. Um, so yeah, it's always this weird kind of equation of everything going on. I, I do think some games will probably test the water. I mean, they already are testing the waters at 70 just to see what people think of that. Um, but ultimately, like whether they stay there is is just going to be determined by how many people will buy them. Like. If they can sell the exact same number of copies for $10 more, of course they're going to do it. But if that price scares off enough people, then obviously they're going to drop down. So, like, you know, you can't really control it. But like you say, like, there's so many free games these days anyway or or super cheap games that, like, people aren't really hurting. Hollow Knight's, like, 15 bucks, and it's a wonderful game. Go get it. My thing we've been talking about on the past episodes, too, that when these consoles drop and, like, with everything happening with COVID and everybody being tight for cash i i don't know what they're expecting sales wise i know we're all still waiting on that the ps5 still hasn't put out that number correct like i haven't missed anything today i was doing stuff for my kids uh not in the last maybe in the last half hour yeah no i haven't seen anything and you hear things like 700 600 and i just don't know how people can well it's gonna be hard for families to justify right ps3 launched at 600 and how did that turn yeah out? but then you also see the messaging from like you know not necessarily official but you saw those initial stories from i think it was bloomberg that were mm-hmm. Basically saying, uh, you know, expect it to cost more and expect us to sell fewer of these things than we did last time around right away. That, to me, is code for Sony kind of like warming up the market to say, like, this is going to be expensive and, you know, don't don't be disappointed when it is. And then they haven't really talked about the VR much for it, right, either? Because that's where, and that's... No. Yeah, I mean, I I think everyone assumes that both the current VR will probably yeah. carry over to work on the new one, and there will probably be a new one at some point. But it, given how close we are to release and they haven't announced it yet, I'm kind of thinking that might be a little ways off. I don't know. I'm thinking if they really want to pull some moves too to get people to buy, they package it with it too. I would be. I could yeah. see something like that maybe. It's, it, the problem is that that just gets so expensive uh, when you add the two. It's like kind of like when Microsoft put mm-hmm. Connect in everything, like no one which no one that. wanted. Yeah, <laughs> no yeah. Well, that. but but yeah. just as far as like the price, it just it got unmanageable. Like selling people things individually for three or four or even five hundred dollars, I think they can stomach. But packaging them together and saying like, oh, it's going to cost eight hundred now, I you save like hundred people bucks, don't right? want that. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> also notable. Like the Astrobot game that they they announced for PS5 is not a VR game, at least that they've they've talked about so far. So like, there's I'm not saying there won't be another one. My guess is there probably will be, but it definitely hasn't been kind of their their focus so far. Yeah, and that thing had a lot of critical steam too. I really would have thought that we would have seen another announcement from that team. Well, yeah, but my point is that like there there right. was, but it's it's yeah, for yeah, non VR. I think I'm pretty I'm pretty sure. Right, yeah. it's not interesting. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Because I know Shelby, that's like the realm he kind of, he always talks to me about going into VR to VR. And I'm not ready there yet because it's like for you, when you do it, you need a, a good space, right? At this point, you feel like like dedicated to it. I'm curious if maybe to the work for these games, I just want accessibility. I think, I think that's what everybody wants. And 
But to back the story at hand to the 70 increase price, I'm going to keep my eye on that because if that's where it's going to go, that's going to change how I shop more. So like, and I don't think Nintendo is going to jump up to 70 yet. So I, I'm okay. See, see, I think it would, I think it'd be interesting to see those kinds of prices less for the biggest budget games and more for games that have a really mm. hardcore yeah. audience. Like, um, like, like in Japan, a lot of the games are, are more than 60. Like mm-hmm. their prices have gone up. And I think it's not really, you know, looked down upon. It's just kind of the way things are. Um, so like if you see a game that, you know, I don't know, plays into a very, very core audience that's not necessarily like a, like a $5 budget game. Like it's a decent budget, but it's not, it's not like Last right. of Us or anything. Uh, I could see those maybe. I mean, people might complain, but I, I think those would justify that kind of cost more than uh, maybe something like a, a Last of right. Us, which there's so much riding on that. Like, if there's a backlash at a seventy, yeah. then maybe they'd be scared to do that. Maybe like a Toby Fox, Undertale type guy goes and puts out a big number. I could see his followings. I mean, I think that that example would be very interesting, just because. Yeah, same. I'd like to see it. I, <laughs> um, just because so many people would would hate him for it, um, because like you know the art style and everything yeah. that he's known for, at least uh, yeah. that would be. This is true. That would be interesting. But, yeah, I mean, I, I personally would like to see people taking weird risks like that as yeah. as upsetting as it probably would be to a lot of people. I'd be okay with it, too, because if people love your game, then you should get what it's worth, too. Like, if Cuphead was still 50 60 bucks, I would have still bought it because of how much I've loved yeah. that game. Yeah, and, and it would have been if it was released 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and speaking of games that were old, our final story is was on Games Radar. So recently, an unopened NES Super Mario Brothers uh, copy just sold for $144,000. It's one of the most expensive games ever sold at a public auction. Shelby knows a lot about the public <laughs> auction space. I know he's worked there. That's what he, yeah, his professional yeah. life, that's what he does. So yeah, what do you think of this uh, move, Shelby? I think Shelby? this is awesome. You know, supply and demand. You know, Turns out there's not a lot of unsealed or sealed copies of the original Mario Brothers out there, right? Cool, 114,000 um, is what it brought, which is pretty cool. I mean, we kind of continue to see this number rise in terms of um, video games. This uh, article claims this to be the most expensive video game ever sold at public auction, which is neat. And I would imagine this number continues to go up as uh, gaming gets a bigger and bigger footprint in society. This is cool. What, what kind of stuff do you auction off? Um, a little bit of everything. Um, I actually specialize in raising money for nonprofits is what I do. So um, normally at Nonprofit Gala is where I am is where our auctions are mainly conducted. Now that we're in the COVID times, we're taking a lot of those events online to virtual. So, so the people space. at those kind of auctions what what would they think about auctioning off video games? Like, is it just like they totally stumped their noses at it? No, I don't think so. I think if you get in the right market, especially if you're in the Bay Area, you know, with a lot of tech mm-hmm. money behind these organizations, and I Seattle think you would too. see something like this. Yeah, Seattle as well. But, I mean, this is obviously a specialty item, and they're they're bidding online in this case. So, um, yeah, it's it's pretty cool to see. Wasn't the disk drive, there's like one in circulation, right? And that sold, there. I'm trying to remember how much I saw that for. I want to say it was like a million bucks or something crazy. Oh, no. Uh, the, it was the S- SNES CD-ROM, and someone offered a $1.2 million for it, the prototype. That was I it. I believe it ended up selling for quite a bit below that. Yeah, yeah. He didn't take the first offer, the person, or, or she. Supposedly, and, yeah. Uh, I mean, we don't know if that was legitimate or not. But yeah, yeah. true. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, that's an interesting case, too, because with that um, that machine, it's... It's the only one that's really like publicly known about right now, but there are others that people like have whispered about and seen here and there out there. And so like over time, if those come out, all of a sudden the price of that may end up dropping a lot. But right. it's obviously kind of got historical importance. I think it's interesting to seeing like the difference between Mario Brothers and something like that is like that is a rare thing that people wouldn't have access to otherwise, whether you're talking about like a prototype of a game or a uh, you know, whatever else. And I think those are kind of interesting to me personally, just because of like finding out stuff that we never knew or we, we didn't have access to before. Whereas like something like Mario Brothers, that's just like pure collector's mentality of like, if the sticker is not perfect, then all of a sudden it drops $100,000. So like, it's it's a very different kind of thing in my head. Um, and I don't know, I personally, <laughs> I'm much bigger or more interested in the former than I am in the latter. But I think it, it, it like it, it, it shows, it's like, the importance here is not 
the rarity of this thing. The importance here is the rarity plus the Mario name on top of it. The history, too. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you've ever seen the show Pawn Stars. There was an episode where a guy brought in an unsealed Mario oh. and he wanted like a million dollars for it. So I'm curious if there's any connection to that guy. That would be interesting <laughs> because now you're seeing like gamers have gotten older. We have money, but we value the art, the history of it. I'm I'm hoping to see more like because Shelby, you do a lot of car auctions, too, right? You've done yeah. a lot of the, the, Met, the Meachums. Is that what it's called? Mm, Meekum? No. I, yes. I've worked alongside them. I haven't worked at that one specifically, but yeah, that classic car market is big. That's huge. And I'm curious. I would mm-hmm. love to see classic video games where people are taking care of them. Like it made me wish I kept all my old NES games. I'm an idiot, um, but I'm I, I like seeing that. It's like seeing people really appreciate it because like the argument is with people that are a bit older that is video games an art form now. Is it like a, is it a medium that you consider with movies and television and books? And I definitely think it's up there. If you had that much money, what would be the thing you would buy, Shelby? <laughs> if you could buy like any ancient piece of uh, gaming history. Oh my gosh, that's a tough one. Um. I'm coming to you too, Matt, for this one. I'd like to hear. Yeah, I mean, nothing really comes to mind. Probably some hard-to-find pinball machine, personally. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not a huge fan of the idea of maintaining a pinball machine, but I keep going back to, oh, man, I'd really love a pinball machine in a space big enough to where I can house a pinball machine. Let's be real. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Your initial question, like my gut answer is like, I would not buy any video game thing. I would buy a nicer house. <laughs> yeah, um, there you go. But I, yeah. I mean, I'm talking... I, I, all the money you can do whatever you want everything's good yeah i mean i think like i said i, I think any any prototype thing would be more more fun on my end like I, I you know if you found a nintendo playstation that actually had like working software on it and not just the drive and stuff like that i think that would probably be pretty high up there um yeah but you know i all of that stuff i think it's fun for a few moments and then it goes away like honestly like the the twenty dollar copy of Street Fighter or whatever game that I like, I'm I'm hooked on from back then. I'll spend so yeah. much more time on it than something I would put on a shelf and, and you know enjoy looking at. So sure. as <laughs> it's not a fun answer really, but yeah, I think it's it's not something that I would personally spend that kind of money on. See, I I'm with you. I don't think I'd go hardware software, but I would love like sketches from the original mm. Zelda, like or like when you look at. Uh, shigeru's original artwork of mario on like the graph paper where they're coloring that in yeah, i would love yeah. to get a piece of like that original yeah I, I i agree with you i think that would just be something cool and i could always point to it and like i've always if i wasn't a teacher i'm a teacher by trade like if i could do anything in the video game realm i always as a kid was talking i wanted to draw i wanted to make video games and my dad was like you're gonna let's do something smarter and i was like oh yeah. he worked in the industry and totally was like no son don't <laughs> But yeah, I've always wanted to see more kind of that stuff out in public same. too, at like art galleries and like uh, conventions and stuff like that. Like you get it from time to time, but it, it, you get it's not that common that you see a lot of that stuff really kind of in person. Right. I know in San Fran, the last time I was there, there's a cartoon history museum. It's like a small little shop there, mm. but they have like original Simpsons frames, some other stuff, and so I. I like that kind of, that that's totally up my alley if I could waste money not waste if I could invest money or had could had money to lose. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Cool cool. Well, that takes our big 3 stories of the week and now we're going to move over to listener emails. Shall we? Yeah, I'm ready. Do it. Uh, the first one is from Eric in Tracy. Hey guys, I know Shelby is a Marvel fan and love hearing him talk about Marvel Strike Force. My question is for all the Marvel movies, not just MCU, which is the most underrated? Ooh, this is a good question. Is it Ghost Rider? Is that everyone's answer because of Nicolas Cage? Definitely <laughs> not Ghost Rider. That one is definitely low on the list. Um,. You know, if I had to pick one specifically, I would say one of the newer Spider-Man movies Mm. is one of the more underrated ones because I think a lot of people are writing off this new Spider-Man series because, oh, it's another Spider-Man movie. I've seen so many of these. So they kind of roll their eyes and move on. But I thought the turn in the first reboot, um, Spider-Man Homecoming, um, had a pretty good turn. Like you knew Mm -hmm. it was coming towards the end of the movie, especially if you're a Spider-Man fan or a Marvel fan. And I I felt that... Uh, twist or not twist but the reveal of the villain was still very well done in that movie i like that they didn't spend a ton of time on his backstory i know like they talked about in civil war they didn't like redo the story who who was the actor that was uh, after toby Maguire before tom holland the he was in the facebook movie that was spider-man i can't think of his name those ones weren't that great 
I felt like right. he's like the amazing Spider-Man series is the one you're is talking Spider-Man about. Spider-Man our new yeah. Bond? Is that like we're going to have like, oh, this is my favorite James <laughs> Bond. This is my favorite Spider-Man. Like I think Bond is retro again because we oh. haven't had Bond in what, like five years. So we're all clamoring A new one's for coming. It. A new one's coming. Yeah. I, I love I love James Bond. Um, I, you know, the one I think of is uh, the Punisher, not the one with Dolph Lundgren, but the one with Thomas Jane where John Travolta is the bad guy. I think that was like right when Marvel was getting really cool again. And it's just like, you know, I, I'm a cinematography nerd. There's some really cool shots and uh, layouts of it. They just, it's a good action popcorn movie. So I can watch that and enjoy that. That would be my favorite. <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint. I, I've seen a couple of them. I, I don't really know too much about <laughs> underrated ones. That's okay. They're fun. We're definitely in an era of like Superman fatigue too, I believe. You know, like it's been going on for too long. I think that's part of the reason you're like Spider-Man really bit, yeah. again, like a huge eye roll. Like I get it. Um, I think the MCU as a whole is just something that is unparalleled in, in comparing it to all of the franchises we've ever seen. I mean, the fact that they were taking these 10 years yeah. ago and they had the forethought to start building this universe and getting all these stars committed to long contracts is really a brilliant model. And I don't know that we'll ever see something of this same magnitude um, that we did with the first Avengers series, personally. It's different, too. Like, you hear Martin Scorsese say they're not film. And, and like, in a way, I get what his argument is, too, because it's not, like, it's something, it's an experience. But it is still film. I don't know. I... I I miss going to the theaters, you know, ever since this too. I never thought I would say that because I do like the comfort of my own home, but something about seeing the movie on the big screen, like, uh, but I, I don't know. I don't know if a Marvel movie will ever be like something like a Forrest Gump to me. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's my favorite movie. I know it's an easy one to say, but that's like, that, that's perfect cinema to me. I think as soon as you say Marvel, people are like, yeah, okay. I've seen it. It's over. Um, You know, if you look into the catalog of those Marvel movies, you know, each one is kind of shot in a different way with a different underlying theme throughout them, which I think is smart. Like you take a, you take one of those Ant-Man films. It's a heist movie. Like you would just write it off as a Marvel film. Okay, whatever. You know, you look at um, that second Captain America movie, Winter Soldier, and it's basically like an espionage style spy film. And, and you, so yeah. like they're taking these specific movies and really writing them in a certain direction, which I think is smart. But like I said, superhero fatigue and the fact that Disney's coming out with three of them a year for the most part, or they right. were for the last three years can make it t- too much of a good thing. Ghost Rider, Nicholas Cage. I think that's what we're going now. No, okay. no, no. That hurts my soul a little bit. Okay. <laughs> uh, enough Marvel talk. Go Marvel. Uh, you want me to do the next one? Sure. Take it. Okay. This is from John Tacoma. Hey guys, when you're playing a video game, what skill trait do you immediately pick up when you're leveling a character? What perks do you like the most? Thanks guys. I always like, I'm a stamina guy. If we're thinking like that yeah. or like, if you can go into stamina, 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 cause then, cause I, I know I play games really aggressive and I know I'm going to get hit a lot <laughs> and I'm willing to die like early on. That's why demon souls kind of scares me to play. I like that. And I like status effect abilities too, where it's damage over time dots mm. you know like oh you get a poison perk and this will wear down the enemy or slow him down i like things like that dude you're getting a wow flex in here huh casey uh, well just any game <laughs> any game that has that like when i played hollow knight like one of my favorite badges was the uh the stink bug one and if you paired it with the fungus when you healed it made a big spore fart cloud and the fart cloud would hurt them so if you played like a game of dodging you could just kill the monsters with those clouds it was so i like that like i like oh okay there's a perk i can hurt i can hurt them without having to like risk a lot and i get a healing benefit <laughs> what about you matt anything come uh, to mind uh i mean i always go for anything that gives me like more variety like i you know, I, I rarely finish a lot of games, so, like, if I can get a new combo or a new weapon or something like that, I'm more interested in just seeing what I can do that, you know, will give me a different experience for the next half hour or whatever. Um, I'm also the kind of person who, if I'm committed to a game, like, I won't upgrade anything until, mm. like, I can finally afford something that seems really exciting. So, like, I'll just, I'll suffer through for a few hours before I can just, like, finally get that payoff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, 
know. The, the, the luxury of being able to play a game long enough to upgrade is just like so out of my grasp right now. <laughs> I know. That's funny you say that because I'm the exact same way. I recently played a game where I was like, gosh, this game is really hard. And then I finally went to the equipment and I'm like, oh, I just need to equip like gear. Didn't that, even realize yeah, right. If dad yeah. mode is real for games, you know, like, oh, I haven't touched this in three months. Oh, that's how I play. Give me just the 30 minute tutorial. Like I've got an hour to play. Yeah, I recently went back to Red Dead, and it was it was not easy to get back into those controls. I tell you what, yeah. Um, I would say that the skill trait that I normally go for is anything that is XP boost. So if you like double my XP in any way, like I am taking that skill. Like that is the first thing on the mm. list. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Quick leveling, exactly. So that's normally where I go. And then like if you ever have to build a city or anything of that nature in any of these games, it's like give me that ongoing residual income of gold. Like that's what I want. Yeah. Oh, that one's good. I'm also like give me the weapons. I want the weapons and I want the weapons now. <laughs> I want the best weapon. If I can find a way to get the best weapon, I'm going to do that. Like an Octopath when I was playing that, there's a way early in the game to get an axe and you could get it and it will last you till the end of the game so it just made life easy but it's like a three percent steals chance so i did a lot of soft resetting for it and i'm i'm yes i scum saved i'm okay with that (laughs) that's a bad word you can't say that i know but you gotta have the best weapon that was like when you're like what's taking you so long with hollow knight when i was playing it was i had to get the final weapon that like there's little things that will throw me off on a game that i can't move past like i can beat it but i want to get this item I'm, i'm weird like that with games where things elude me you know? So did you get like the ultimate master sword when you replayed Ocarina of Time? Uh, I, I don't know. I just got the ma- I did Ooh. not get the Gorn sword. Ooh. My buddy was giving me a hard time. He was like, it's the only side quest worth doing. I was like, eh, <laughs> I know. I remember that being a pain in the neck. Like you had to like take the tears from the mountain to the other side of the map. It was a whole thing. In like a yes. day cycle. Uh-huh. Only- when I read the like requirements, I was like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do this. Nah, this is not worth it for my dad right now. Uh, that's awesome. So that takes us to our last email that we have, and it's from Raj in Seattle. What we're saying, saying from the past do you think should come back? I think with my tie-dye shirt, I should say groovy, but I'm not going to. Yeah, he's, he's definitely um, in a tie-dye shirt for all of those listening out there. Use your colorful imaginations to think up a tie-dye shirt. Does anyone say rad anymore? I say that like I, to my students sometimes. Yeah. They get a really rad weird look. I'm like, oh, that's rad. Like, that's oh. the thing. I feel like my vocabulary hasn't really changed since then. Because <laughs> that's like when you, when you hit like age 15 or so, you kind of just like talk like that for the rest of your life. Um, mm-hmm. Or maybe I do. But yeah, I don't know. It, it feels like... I probably say things like it's weird. Like this, this is just a random example, but like I used the word charming the other day and my mom looked at me and she was like, <laughs> what are you saying? That's such an unusual word. And I'm like, it just seems so normal to me. And it's like every, every era has different things that just seem off to them. Uh, Probably not in the spirit of fun that we asked the question. No, about. no, that's great. <laughs> no, that's good. Well, I think of it too from you, you as a writer and like when you're talking about games, like, Charming might be one you use. Is, do you think you see games that are or like words that are used to describe a game or people use it too much? Is there any like that you like to use or any that you see that you're like, oh, they're using it again? Well, what, what stands me the most now is that like now that I'm like a, a little bit older than some of the people I work with, like seeing some of the words they use, like like Stan and whatever else. And like the first time I heard it, I'm like, oh, I got to really? look this up. And like, obviously I know what it is now, but <laughs> like that, that happens, you know, fairly <laughs> often these days, like every era kind of has its own things. Um, I teach at a middle school. So every yeah. year I'm always like, what? You're on the ground floor. You're yeah. Yeah. on the polls. I'm hip. I'm with it. Yeah. I, I've been trying to bring, bring back the word fabulous in my office. It just feels underrated. Fabulous. That's- Oh, yeah, that was fabulous. Fab. Fab is probably like near 90s. Yeah, yeah. I also am a big fan of Bangarang. I like to see Bangarang come back. Oh, from a hook? Yeah, exactly. Very good movie. <laughs> that the Rufio is the voice of Zuko in Avatar. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. go figure. There's my random Avatar fact for you for this episode. I think kids don't use dude as much, but I, I know when I refer to my students and I, I make it really clear wherever you feel dude is a generic term i use for every person so if i call you that please do not be offended it's just how i talk everybody's a dude like listen dude or bro that was the other one because i'll get a bro out there and like a girl look at me i'm like sorry it just happened i'll go back to dude so i'm like come on but they they all look the bruh so that with the uh instead yeah. of the o so so much more judgmental i know it's more of the i, I really bro that's the they're trying to hurry you up or can't believe you yeah, kid slang can make you feel really bad when you come home after work. You're like, oh, that's what that meant. <laughs> yeah, 
I, I remember using Urban Dictionary ironically a couple years back, and now I actually need to use it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh no, my a kid called uh, our counselor a boomer at my school, and she's like twenty two, and it's weird. I I would like to see those kind of words go. I get called the boomer, but I would like to bring back dude. I think dude needs to be in every. I use language. dude all the time. Yeah. What up, dude? Yeah. It's my it's my happy word. It's my happy word. It is. Oh my gosh, we should start doing happy words of the week. Okay. Yeah. Good. Next week, new segment. I'm, to come. I'm gonna start throwing out charming in there. <laughs> I think I'm gonna. I, yeah. Not that I even use it hardly ever. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, I think, and I think with the way the internet kind of has spread everything out, I feel like things don't really go away like they used to. Like you just find them in different pockets. Like even, like whether it's like right. fashion or music or different tastes or whatever else. Like. I feel like it's not like one thing just comes around for an era and then goes away. I think it just kind of gets moved into its own little pocket of the world. So like it's easier to kind of let everything coexist now, which is great. Well, Matt, thank you so much for being with us today, man. It was great getting to know you and I appreciate your insight on Street Fighter and your different projects. Oh, thank you. Where can uh, our listeners find you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter. It's uh, Latmeone, L-A-T-T-M-E-O-N-E. Um, yeah, the, the Street Fighter book is, is crowdfunding for until, I guess early august and uh and obviously on polygon yeah my my all the all the stuff on polygon is my day job it's a great site you know, yeah it's it it's kind of a big deal you know people like it uh it's a good it's a good one well i it's doing well <laughs> and then we'll be definitely talking and putting in kickstarter i'm going to be putting some money towards it later today i want that book i like the don't feel any no it's not because that. of that i actually where i am my wife is a english literature major for big book people in the house but what got me is the cool cover you did with the controller combos i like the layout so i like I, i'm a sucker for a cover I do judge a book by its cover. That's my issue. I, I can't take credit for that personally, but yes, I am. I'm a fan. Well, and the, you tell me about the secret song. That's kind of the <laughs> the push too. I was like, it's not a secret. It's just it's on the sec- it's on the Kickstarter campaign. Is everybody gonna get it? No, no. The people who choose to put the extra I will. pledge in. The people the people who read the full page yes, will know this is true. I not skim it like I did. My fault. Unlike yourself. Unlike myself. <laughs> yes. A speed reading is I should do better as a teacher. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us today, and I really appreciate it. Happy to do it. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Yeah, and uh, if you want to get more of us, feel free to check us out on Twitter at underpoweredpod, on Instagram at under.powered, or shoot us a message at emails at underpoweredmedia.com. Also, feel free to check out our Discord, and uh, thanks for being with us. We out. Play your games.